Welcome to another episode of the Tom Shimmer Podcast. Happy Monday, everyone, and happy holiday weekend. Friday, of course, was Canada Day here in Canada, which is Canada's celebration of Confederacy, which dates back to 1867. And of course, today is July 4th, which is Independence Day in the United States, which celebrates the Declaration of Independence. Uh, that was ratified by the Second Continental Congress on July 4th, 1776. So on either end of the weekend, in either country, it truly was a long weekend, and I hope it was a great one uh, for all of you. A few quick announcements as we get going today. Um, sadly, the Student Agency Institute uh, that was scheduled for Laval, Quebec in October, uh, that has been postponed. Uh, if I have any other information about a rescheduling or anything like that, I'll let you know, but for now, uh, that event is not going ahead. Now, this month, we have the annual conference on assessment and grading. That's going to be in Austin, Texas, July 18th through 20th. Along with myself, the conference will feature Cassandra Erkins, Angie Fries, Garnet Hillman, Tony Reibel, Mandy Stalitz, and Katie White. The two-day grading from the inside out uh, training is going to be happening this fall and into the winter as well. Well, not quite into the winter, but Long Beach, California will be September 21st and 22nd. I'll also be in Minneapolis, Minnesota, December 1st and 2nd. So not technically the winter, uh, but it is December. All of the information for those events can be found on the Solution Tree website. Of course, as always, I'll have links in the show notes for them as well. The other conference, of course, that I keep telling you about is the Teach Better Conference. The podcast, of course, is part of the Teach Better Network. That's happening in Akron, Ohio. That'll be October 14th and 15th. Again, a ton of great speakers lined up for that. A link in the show notes for that as well. And if you register using the code SHIMMER22, uh, you'll receive a $25 discount on your registration. Okay, thanks for tuning in again this week. Uh, as always, a big welcome to any new listeners joining in for the first time and a big thank you to longtime listeners. I certainly appreciate all of you. Uh, this week, my guest is Tyrone McNeil, who is the president of the First Nations Education Steering Committee, or what we call here in BC, FINESC. Uh, so we're going to focus on a topic that we really haven't spent a lot of time on uh, on this podcast, uh, which is Indigenous education. So that's a great conversation with uh, Tyrone. In Assess That with Tom and Nat, Natalie Vardabasso returns, and we're going to talk about some analogies that really help explain certain assessment concepts. So that is today's plan. Let's get to it. My conversation with Tyrone McNeil is coming up, but first, don't at me. But I thought I might open this week on the lighter side and share a little bit about my recent trip to Montreal with my son to see our first ever Formula One race. Now it is, as I mentioned earlier, a holiday weekend in both Canada and the United States, so I thought maybe this would be a good time to press pause on the whole old man yelling at clouds openers that I often find myself getting into. Uh, look, there'll be lots of time for that, of course, um, but I wanted to talk a little bit about the experience. Uh, the whole F1 experience in Montreal was truly phenomenal, both for the event, but also for me and my son personally. Um, as most of you know, I travel a lot and and both my kids are now adults, so I don't get to spend as much time with them as I once did when they were little. Uh, Samantha doesn't live at home anymore, and uh, that makes it more challenging, of course. And Adrian, who still lives at home, uh, finishing his university degree. But of course, I with my travel, uh, I don't see him as much. So it's definitely focused me on quality time, not quantity time uh, with my two kids. Now, during the first year of the pandemic, uh, when I wasn't traveling at all, you know, like so many of you, I had a lot of time for Netflix and Amazon Prime, Apple Plus, all of that. 
And I still remember back in, I think it was May of 2020 or uh, when we were all watching The Last Dance, right? The Michael Jordan documentary. Um, that, of course, was appointment viewing and everybody couldn't wait uh, to watch the, the episodes that came out. Now, as many of you also know, I am an avid podcast listener. Um, I subscribe to probably too many podcasts to sometimes get through, so I often have to just bypass the ones that are daily shows. If I listen to them, that's great, and if I don't, I just delete them and move on to the next day. I tend to prioritize the ones that come out on a weekly basis or a couple times a week or something like that. Now, my favorite podcast is a sports podcast called the Ryan Rossillo Podcast. Now, I've been listening to Ryan Rossillo since about 2009, 2010, when he was actually on the rise at ESPN, and he had a podcast there back in 09. He was a, one of the participants in what was called, at the time, the NBA Today podcast. And I've actually been a pretty loyal listener to uh, Ryan Rossillo since then. He's now uh, with uh, Bill Simmons and The Ringer. Anyway, uh, during his podcast a couple of years ago, he kept talking about this Netflix series called Drive to Survive, which chronicled some of the more recent Formula One seasons. Now, for me, growing up, I was never, you know, a car guy or what's sometimes called a gearhead or something like that. You know, I, I'd watch maybe the Indy 500 or the occasional NASCAR race, but I actually often get kind of bored. Uh, they're just driving around an oval and I didn't really know anything about cars. So I just kind of moved on. But Ryan Rossillo kept raving about this show called Drive to Survive and, and how compelling it was. And, and um, you know, of course, I had a lot of time on my hands. So I thought, well, I'll take his recommendation and I'll try it out. What have I got to lose? Right? I got nothing but time on my hands. So I turned on the first season, which I think was about the 2018 season. And by episode three, I am completely hooked. Now, for me, it was sort of the drama of the sport. I mean, that's what I love about sports is how real it is, how compelling it is, the competition, all of that. So the drama of it, right? Um, I have a bit of an obsession with watching sports. Uh, not all sports, of course, but a lot. And, and what I loved about the show as I was watching it was, was essentially three things. One was getting to know the drivers personally, right? You, you know them, and so you become a lot more invested in, in how things are unfolding. Uh, the insight into the competition, right? I love expertise. I, I know I'm not alone in this, but I love expertise in almost anything. Like watching people who are the very best at anything, whether it's musicians or chefs or athletes, it doesn't matter to me. I love watching people who are expert in something, especially when they are expert in something that is totally outside of my comfort zone. And the third thing I loved about it is it was something that was completely brand new to me. I This is something I didn't grow up with, I didn't, I didn't love. So by the time 2021 rolls around, I started watching the races that were happening, the 2021 season. So I'd finished the Netflix series and I started watching this season um, as I started to feel fully invested in, in Formula One. And the 2021 season was so compelling, especially the second half of the season. But it ended with a bit of controversy uh, between Lewis Hamilton of Mercedes and Max Verstappen of, of Red Bull. Uh, so Max became the champion. It was a controversial ending. Um, and now I'm hooked on Formula One. So then I see in November of 2021 that the Canadian Grand Prix is returning, coming back since 2019. There has not been a Canadian Grand Prix. So it's coming back to Montreal. And I think, hey, why not? So last November, I bought the tickets and my son and I went to Montreal for five days, June 15th through 20th. And um, here, here are some of the things just to kind of give you a feel for that experience and, and what that was like for us. Here, here's what I love. First, it was the energy of race day. 
Like it was a sunny day. It was warm. The weather wasn't that great through the whole weekend, but on race day, it was clear blue sky. It was sunshine. It was warm. The crowd was amped. There was a lot of hype. And, you know, some of the seats in in the the uh, in the track have a view of a screen where you can see the race, but ours kind of did, but it was a little bit far away uh, because we were on the straight right after the hairpin turn. Now, when you're at the race, you really don't know what's happening on other parts of the track unless you have a view of that screen. And if you're not that close to it, you can't really tell what's happening. So the anticipation of the order, like who passed who and and who held off who as they're coming down that that front half of the track to the hairpin turn, that was so alluring as the kind of drive, like the drivers kind of came into that approach. And as they roared down the approach, we could kind of see them and the anticipation of the crowd just kept growing and growing. And almost every time they came around the hairpin corner and, and accelerated down the back stretch, the crowd stood up and watched them head down the back stretch and we're stretching our necks to try to see if anybody can pass somebody on that straightaway and, and get their speed going. So the whole experience on race day, yes, it was a lot of people. It was big crowds, but honestly, the energy of it was fabulous. Now, we had a three-day package, uh, and our seats were the same every single time. So by the end of the third day, you've been sitting beside and around the same people for three days. So you kind of get to know them a little bit, which was a lot of fun. Now, the second thing we loved about our experience was the F1 experience uh, that, uh, you know, the idea that one thing I didn't realize uh, before I got there was that there's things happening at the track all day long. So when you get to the track, you can watch for a bit. Um, there's smaller car series going on. There's lots of different things happening uh, throughout the course of the day. Obviously, what's happening with the Formula One cars is the highlight and the and the feature, but there's so much happening, right? There's an experience when you go to the track. You could spend the full day there and not really watch too much racing, but kind of do a lot of other things, right? You can wander the grounds, you can shop for some F1 swag. And, you know, I promise you there is a ton of gear for every team available. Uh, fantastic food trucks on site, beverages to be had everywhere. Heineken was the official supplier, but there's also wine, there's cocktails, soft drinks, whatever you want. There's a fan zone that had a number of different experiences in that fan zone, mostly geared toward kids and, and adolescents, but, but it was a fun area to be in, tons of energy. Uh, again, the energy was awesome. And the people were just, everyone just was so excited to be there. So I love that. And then specifically around the experience, we had purchased an extra package called the F1 experience. And so this is the third thing I loved. And that included a pit lane walk, uh, a guided track tour, and a photo with the championship trophy. The pit lane walk was really cool because you get to see the cars up front and you got to actually look into the garages and kind of see what was happening, uh, how the work was going, on, you know, unfolding. Now, we did the pit lane walk on Saturday night after qualifying. Now, it was supposed to be on Thursday, but an intense thunderstorm kind of canceled Thursday uh, Thursday's experiences, so they moved it to Saturday. So during qualifying on Saturday, Sergio Perez, who is a Red Bull driver, uh, crashed his car uh, during qualifying. So when we were walking the pit lane, you could see the mechanics actually working on his car, trying to repair his car. And they got to repair that car all night and have it ready for the race the next day. So that was kind of, you know, not cool for him, but certainly cool for us to kind of see the inner workings of, of how the garages worked along the pit road. And of course, you could see all the vehicles were all there lined up for everyone to see. 
Now the guided track tour, we got on these extended sort of trucks that, uh, you know, had railings, of course, and contained, but they were on the back of a, a truck and they drove us around the track and they were kind of explaining the track and, and explaining a little bit about each corner and what the drivers had to do. And, uh, and then of course, in the end, we had a, a photo with the championship trophy. Now we had to leave quickly from that tour because we also had tickets to see uh, an MLS game. So C, uh, CF Montreal was playing Austin in MLS soccer uh, which would have been no problem uh, because we would have done the tour on Saturday, but because the tour and everything was moved to, to or, or would have been, sorry, Thursday, but because the tour was moved to Saturday, it meant like we had to get back to the hotel because we had a backpack and you can't bring backpacks into the soccer game. So back to the hotel in the Metro before heading to the stadium. So long story short, we got to the stadium at halftime. So we saw half a game, which was a bit of a bummer because my son and I are also really big soccer fans. Uh, but again, another cool stadium experience and something else to do in Montreal. So Saturday was a was a like a great day. Um, we just went to the stadium, ate there, did all that we could there. I also appreciated just so many. I think it's about they estimate about three hundred and fifty thousand people attend the event over the weekend, and I so appreciated the efficiency with which people were moved. Uh, clearly, Montreal has done this before. Um, because again, 350,000 people over the weekend, but given that that many people, the lines actually move rather quickly, uh, especially the metro lines that kind of run from the island where the circuit is, Gilles Villeneuve circuit. Um, now, Gilles Villeneuve is a Canadian F1 driver who sadly died in, in uh, 1982 in Belgium in a race uh, during qualifying at only 32 years old. Um, now, that track is named after him. His son, Jacques Villeneuve, uh, was a prolific Canadian driver in the late 90s and early 2000s. In fact, he was world champion in 1997. So I I knew of him, of course, but I didn't follow F1, uh, and there wasn't as much media about it back then, so I didn't really know. But the way that they moved people in and out from the island to downtown um, and through the metro was was clinical. It was, I couldn't believe how quickly. So I appreciated that because the lines are daunting. There's a lot of people, but man, we got through it quickly. One more thing that I loved about it, the city itself. If you haven't been to Montreal and you ever have a chance to go to Montreal, it is truly a special city. Um, you know, I, look, I live in a pretty spectacular metro area as well. I, and Vancouver is one of the most spectacular cities in the world. But I have to tell you, when you go to Montreal, you really do feel like you're somewhere else. Um, I think a lot of it has to do with the fact that it's a French first city. And of course, in Quebec, first language is... is um, is French and speak French and English, uh, but but where where I am, of course, in the West, it's pretty much always English first, unless you're in certain parts of Metro Vancouver, but pretty much English first. So the idea of the language alone gave it a different feel, and of course, there's old Montreal, which is you know the closed off streets, the cobblestones, the restaurants, the atmosphere. It is a truly special part of the city, and really does add that sort of Euro flair to, to Montreal. We ate there most of the time. Like I said, we ate at the game on Saturday night, uh, the soccer game. But the whole experience in the city and the way the city itself embraces the Grand Prix uh, is it's really clearly something special uh, happening you know, in the city. Now, the only glitch, here's the one story. Uh, the only glitch in the Matrix was Sunday night. 
Um, I'm a planner. And I know for big events like this, restaurants often get packed. So about a month prior, uh, I made a number of different dinner reservations for my son and I, so we wouldn't be stuck kind of wondering where to eat. Now, we could always change those plans, but I thought if I got these on the on the books, then we can, we can go from there. So uh, at least, you know, I thought to myself, I, I'll get this organized, and at least we've got that to, to go off. And I thought to myself as I was making the reservations, what better way to close out Sunday, race day, than to hit a proper steakhouse to celebrate our trip and our first ever F1 race. So I get on open table, I look for a Sunday night reservation, I find one at a highly rated steakhouse in Montreal. Uh, 7.30 reservation, we're flying home the next day, that's how we do it, this is going to be epic. So Sunday night after the race, we walk to the restaurant, ready for a great meal, and the doors are locked. And no one's in the restaurant. I looked at the sign next to the door. They're closed on Sundays. <laughs> so somehow, open table, let me make a reservation for a restaurant. And I had the reservation. They let me make a restaurant, uh, a reservation for a restaurant that is closed on Sundays. So uh, not so good. Uh, but we rallied. Uh, we found uh, a little French restaurant, uh, casual kind of French restaurant uh, in old Montreal. We ate outside. We were people watching, a couple of cocktails, and we capped off uh, a, a great trip. You know, for me, tapping into a new sport has really been fun. And, um, you know, I, I, I've since found out that so many other people I know are not only into F1, but they've been watching it for decades. And, and I'm like, I had no idea. Um, you know, I don't really know much about cars, as I said, but I love watching competition. And now I'm in the learning phase to try to understand the sport with more specificity. Um, I listen to a couple of podcasts that are weekly podcasts about F1 because it's helping me kind of learn. And I love that. I am an F1 fan solely because of Netflix. Um, as we chatted with people at restaurants, we, my son and I actually met a couple at an Irish pub we were at um, who go to one to two races every year. And it's funny because they're, they've been fans for a long time and they appreciated the fact that we fully admitted to being fans uh, because of Netflix. Apparently, people who've watched Netflix try to pretend like they've been fans for a whole life. I don't know why people do that, but but they do apparently. Um, you know, some, some people we met weren't happy that the crowds were bigger than they've ever been and they blame Netflix for that. Uh, but honestly, the sport has never been more popular uh, and it seems to be on the rise here in North America. Now, Austin and Montreal have been on the calendar for years, but now there's also an F1 race in Miami. Uh, Las Vegas is coming, I think, in November of 2023. So F1 seems to be expanding its presence uh, in North America. So it'll be kind of cool. There'll be a race in the east in, in Miami, also in Montreal. There'll be a race in Austin, kind of the central part of the country of the United States. Uh, and then there'll be a Western race in, in Las Vegas. So that's kind of cool. I mean, I probably will never love F1 the way I love some other sports. But I have to tell you, tapping into this unfamiliar world uh, has been like a burst of energy to my sports viewing activities. Um, like every sport, it's the competitors, uh, it's the storylines, it's it's the drama that, that make it so compelling. I, look, I know it's not for everyone, um, but if you haven't watched Drive to Survive on Netflix, I dare you. I dare you to watch it because I promise you, you will emerge with at least more interest or more understanding of F1 than you did before. Now, maybe you won't become a fan, sure, uh, but you'll be more familiar with something that is so massive right now that I have really had no idea was, was that big. It was an amazing experience, and certainly this won't be the last race we attend, that's for sure. But most importantly, it was a shared experience 
with my son that I will never forget. Joining me today is Tribal Chief Tyrone McNeil. Tyrone is Stalo and a member of the Seabird Island Band. He has extensive experience working to advance First Nations languages, education, collaborating with First Nations across the country, and developing agreements and partnerships with the government. He holds numerous leadership positions, uh, listeners. Uh, he is Vice President and Tribal Chief of the Stalo Tribal Council. He's the President of the First Nations Education Steering Committee. He, the Assembly of First Nations Chiefs Committee on Education. He is the representative from British Columbia, the chair of the Emergency Planning Secretariat, chair of Seabird College, president of Seabird Development Corporation, and the standing chair of the Union of BC Indian Chiefs. So clearly, listeners, you know exactly where this conversation is going today. Uh, Tyrone, you have an incredible number of titles uh, and leadership positions. I want to welcome you to the podcast today. Thank you so much for having me, Tom. Yeah, it's great to have you here. Uh, looking forward to our conversation. I'm glad we could make this happen. Now, before we dig into our conversation, which is clearly going to focus in on uh, the education of our Indigenous youth here in British Columbia and across Canada and quite literally around the world, I do want listeners to have a little bit more about your background. So before we dig into the substance of that conversation, let's talk a little bit about you. Maybe talk about your background um, professionally. What is your background? And why the gravitation toward education? Why so much involvement uh, in the education field? Well, pr professionally, out of the, all the hats I wear, Tom, I think that the, the only one that will approach the professional side is, is manager of a, a First Nations owned civil construction company. That's really my paying day job. We have about 80 employees, the majority are First Nations. We have not First Nations, which is fine, but we're about First Nations, right? And right. Th th we've gone, transitioned over the years from job creation to career development. And it, it, by career development, I mean stable, high paying jobs. I got a number of my crew are actually building houses, paying for it out of their pocket, Tom. Not, not a, a low subsidy housing, but paying, paying a mortgage out of their pocket. So it's, it right. is really about career development. Mm -hmm. So, so that's your, your day job and that's what pays the bills and, mm -hmm. and supports your family, but you, you have such a heavy, heavy involvement in education. So what drew you to, again, being, you know, we're, we're going to talk about finesse in a moment, mm -hmm. um, but, but just, you know, your, your, your involvement with education, where did that sort of stem from? I can, it started specifically in 1999, Tom. Uh, I got elected on to the Seabirds Band Council, and we've had a very stable governance right from the get-go. So in that election, I was the only new member elected into eight council members and a chief. And this is 1999, and back then, folks didn't necessarily look at education as a as a priority. There, there are so many other priorities that chiefs and council are responsible for. Right. So it just so happens that the rookie on council got this thing called an education portfolio. Mm -hmm. And although I was aware of education, partly involved and whatnot, I, I didn't, wasn't aware of what was all involved. So taking it on as a portfolio, being in our school here in Seabird on nearly a daily basis, the public schools, the school board office, it, it just sparked a passion in me, Tom. I, I seen it as the, 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 the number one vehicle for moving and transitioning our, our entire population for, from a population based on dependency from, from the Indian Act to, to empowerment, to, to self-determination. 
And, you know, we can't advance ourselves professionally, career-wise, financially with better paying jobs if we don't have a better education, a higher education. So literally right from day one on a job as an edu education portfolio, it just, it bit me really deep, Tom. And then over, over, over time, I found more and more people were like-minded and engaging in some really powerful conversations. So I just found myself to, to be, although I was new to it, a really good fit. And I still enjoy it here in 2022. Yeah, absolutely. We, uh, we know that as, as educators as well, we, we know that uh, that foundation for children and, and adolescents and youth as they grow uh, into adulthood, that foundation of education really is the key to success and, and, a, and a lifelong of success. Let's talk a little bit again, just to give listeners, you know, be, listeners from British Columbia will, will know the First Nations Education Steering Committee or FINESC, but for listeners who are outside of British Columbia or even outside of Canada, can you just give us a, a, an overview of what is FINESC and what is the mission of that organization? Uh, FINESC is a, uh, is a First Nations technical organization um, working with and supporting and in some cases representing and advocating for two, the 203 First Nation communities here in the province. And within those communities, we've got 130 schools on reserve, uh, mostly primary, so about 30 go up to grade 12. We've got 37 post-secondary institutes on reserve that we work with, support, advocate, advocate for as well. Mm -hmm. So we, we've got a, a political, although we're technical, we do have a political protocol. In BC, we're, First Nations are really well versed in finding ways to come together in key areas like education, child welfare, forestry, mining, whatnot. So in that, our three political bodies, the Union of BC Indian Chiefs, the First Nations Summit, and the BC Assembly of First Nations, they, they're exactly comes together and are known as the First Nations Leadership Council. Uh, that's our most senior First Nations leadership in the province. And we, we have a protocol with them, like others do. But in our case, our protocol states that we're the lead advocacy body for First Nations lifelong learning here in British Columbia. Mm -hmm. So let's pivot now and talk about the education of Indigenous youth and, and children and talk about some specifics. Now, we're going to get to the other side of this coin uh, momentarily, but I want to begin with what currently has you feeling the proudest in terms of what's happened so far, or what has you feeling the most optimistic going forward about how Indigenous children and youth in BC are, are being educated and how they're being supported? What has you what has you sort of really feeling positive at this point? Um, what, one of the things make me feel positive and comes back to the, the organization's mission and mandate and whatnot around starting with Indian control of Indian education, parental involvement, local control and whatnot. We've wrapped that up into a really comprehensive tripartite agreement between Finesse, British Columbia and Canada called the BC Tripartite Education Agreement. In there, we're really explicit on the flow of funding and key program areas. A big chunk of that funding comes to us as an organization, and we work with communities on, on a methodology for distributing throughout the province, whether they're school-based, community-based, institute-based. Mm -hmm. And what we're doing in such a coordinated fashion, it's, it's, it's virtually seamless, Tom. I've got 130 board members and we, 
We get together quarterly. We have stacked agendas, four inches binders of information, and we find ways to be on the same page on virtually every issue that comes before us, whether mm -hmm. something we're new and starting off from scratch, or ultimately the, the provincial or federal government might be posing something we don't agree with, and we come up with a response to the strategy and that attack that voted on unanimously, and then we advance it that way. And then uh, directly related to that, Tom, is like the moving of the, of the agenda for First Nations education here in BC. I, I, I was just attending a, a, a BC school trustees AGA last month. And the, the, that they, as an organization, as a major stakeholder in, in education here in BC, they've shifted considerably over the last eight years, Tom. I can remember being invited to their AGA in 2016, and the, the first words out of my mouth in a room full of trustees and superintendents and ministry officials, Tom, is some of you here in this room are racist. Mm. And the, 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 a number of them were, right? And after I finished talking, and uh, a number came up to me thanked me for, for identifying the elephant in the room. So we, we've, we, we being the, the BC School Trustees Association, Tom, have moved from me making that comment in 2016 to being invited to the AGA last month where they spent two full days with First Nations elders doing some cross-cultural training and sharing with a room full of trustees that were fully attentive, fully engaged, and fully appreciative of being educated like that. So that's a major shift in the system, right? And the trustees are a big piece of the education system. We need more other stakeholders embracing us like that too. But that's really something to celebrate, Tom. When yeah. You have a room full of trustees being happy to be educated by First Nations elders for two days. It's amazing. Wow, that that is amazing. Two two things I want to follow up with in your answer there. First, um, Let's start with the one, the first one of the first things you said. Everybody being on the same page is almost unheard of in any situation or any circumstance. How did that happen? How did how did where did you find your way to that level of alignment within the organizations that are trying to work together? But we find, in my case, it's education, but it applies to other sectors as well, where we're all under certain pressures, whether we're not receiving the funding required to do what we're doing, or there's mm -hmm. policies and policy frameworks that don't recognize us or, or lack our worldview. So we, we come from a, a pretty standard position of oppression, right? Mm -hmm. So for education, it was a lack of funding from federal government. They, they wouldn't fund us comparably to the provincial government. The provincial, the Ministry of Education and school boards making decisions that didn't include us. That was standard right across the province, right? Right. So when we met together, we talked about, okay, we're tired of being treated that way. How do we want to change it? And we've got some excellent staff, Tom. I got a great team of staff supporting mm -hmm. me, and particularly my executive director, Deb Jeffrey. And we have a number of staff like here where there are teachers in the past, there are trustees in the past, there are lawyers, they're, they're well-rounded folks, mm -hmm. citizens, and they're here working for me within the organization. So mm -hmm. what, what an issue is before us, and staff get together, frame out some suggested responses or options, bring it up to the board level, have dialogue, like everybody's included, Tom. Yeah. And quite, quite often we get pressure from provincial and federal government on the amount of money it takes for us to bring our board together. Or we have regional sessions where we've broken the province down to nine different regions, and we're out there up to six times a year in each region talking about local educational agreements, curriculum, 
language and culture, graduation, those kind of things. So the, the, mm-hmm. for, for me in education, the, the number one reason for us being on the same page is we're so inclusive. Mm-hmm. A 130 member board is pretty representative of the province. We we get out into the regions, into communities on a regular basis to hear from. And we, we, I'm never surprised, Tom, at the, the excellent suggestions that come from the ground. The, the, those folks were literally on the ground and in classrooms. We wouldn't even have thought of, but we, we raise something with them. They respond that way. And then we have the ability to raise that to be our, our province-wide mandate in that area. So it's that inclusivity, the flexibility, the communications that, that allows us to be on the same page. Yeah, I, I, I love that. Um, the one, one other follow-up to, to what you were saying there, and maybe if you would just very briefly, uh, for listeners outside of British Columbia, when I, when I travel around the United States and Canada and other places and I talk about some of the structures we have in place, and I, I don't mean to suggest they are by in any means perfect, but when I describe for them the enhancement agreements, the memorandums of understanding we have within school districts, could you, could you describe that for listeners outside of BC? help them understand some of the the structures that have been put in place, the enhancement agreements, as I say, the memos of understanding, the things that exist to support Indigenous learners, whether they be on reserve or whether they be in a public school system. Uh, could you give us a brief description of that so people understand a little bit of what you've been referring to? Sure. And that's actually a big piece of the work that we do in the backgrounds, Tom, right. where de- depending on the relation a local first station has with the school district, and a school district could have one, two, 15, 20 different First Nations communities within the school district bounds, mm-hmm. that they, they, if the if the if the relation is lacking, typically you have an enhancement agreement, something just to set the table to develop a relationship. So, what what are the most important relations we have between our First Nations and, and local school boards and trustees is what we call a, a, a legally binding contractual relation called a local education agreement. In there, it allows the First Nations to identify their priorities, their relation to the school board, to the schools in support of their kids. And it's about communications, data sharing, whatnot. So we, we as an organization do, a, in my view, biased view, Tom, a really good job of creating templates for communities to pick up. And, you know, a good chunk of the work is there. The structure is there. The, the language is there. They modify it to the local community needs, local capacity needs, be more reflective of the relation that they have with the school boards. Mm-hmm. So it's moving from what typically were, were fairly soft, kind of good commitment, good sounding agreements around enhancement and we used to, a, you know, a, a contractual agreement. And it's pretty significant and it, it is appropriate because the, in that LEA, it gives us a chance to, to, to talk to school boards in a, in a quasi-government to government relation, Tom. So yeah. we're not stewards of the system, we're, we're rights holders and the LEAs do a good job of describing that. So one of the one of the duties I had in Penticton was uh, around uh, Indigenous education and the the fascinating work with the enhancement agreements and the layers of understanding. It was definitely a steep learning curve in that. Now, I want to Go back to one more thing you you said, Tyrone. I'm trying to envision you in 2016 standing in the middle of a, a meeting of provincial trustees, and and making this assertion. And I'm I, can you walk me through what the next few hours or the next few days of that that kind of looked like? I can imagine the types of reactions you must have had in the room uh, when when you stand up and you say all of you or most of you in this room are racist. How did how did you navigate? How did the group navigate through those those hours or those couple of days when you were together? Just give, maybe give us some insight as to how that played out 
that obviously was a breakthrough in in <laughs> relations. We had to shock the system a little bit, didn't you? So let's let's yep. go ahead go ahead and walk us through that. What yep. well, to, to be clear to begin with, about my statement is some of you in this some room of you. are racist. Okay, okay, fair yep. enough. Because the, the, the we know and the ministry knows that there's some school districts within the province that they, they, they put it nicely, Tom. They challenge us. They. The, the the First Nations graduation rate in some districts is as low as 12%. And it's just, that's not acceptable. And no. to, to be completely disregarded like that is, is nothing but racist. Right. So uh, keep in mind that the trustees AGA was in alignment with my provincial education conference where we bring a thousand people together every year and, and talk about the priorities in education. So just because we're I, like, I was, it takes a lot to get me to say that in, in, in front of a group like that, Tom. And, uh, yeah. But it shows you our relation with some school boards at the time. So right. I, I, I signaled back to my team, I'm going to hang out here for a little while because I, I can't just say that and walk out, right? So right. I, I sat there for a couple of hours and a large number of trustees came up to me and just thanked me for putting the elephant on the room. They, they know what they see amongst their peers across the province, mm -hmm. but as an association, they, they really can't do anything. They, they can't penalize or, or scold a, a board or anything like that. Right. But just, just the fact that they, they owned it, nobody said I'm, I'm a liar, it's not true or anything like that. Mm -hmm. But they, I think they as an association struggled with, how, how do we manage that as an association? So kudos on the, the executive leadership of the trustees. They, they, they really owned it. They did their own work to transition them as an organization from me making that statement to, to spending two days with their elders. And so really it was the executive leadership of the organization that I, that I thank and recognize mm -hmm. for that, Tom. Because yeah. there, there are a lot of trustees throughout the province and a lot of folks with different thoughts, different mindsets. So a lot of them are wide open and accepting of us and some are closed and not accepting of us. But right. the, the, the executive leadership took the appropriate role and, and took the association to a much better place. And I know it wouldn't have been easy. Their internal discussion would have been a lot more um, open, I'm sure, than a public meeting. But they, they did it. And I really appreciate it with that hard work. For me, that is the epitome of speaking truth to power, and 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 obviously, it it paid dividends in terms of the work that's happened since then. And uh, leadership requires courage. And Tyrone, clearly, uh, you were showing tremendous leadership in that moment. Now, let's go to the flip side. We know that we have in BC made uh, tremendous strides in terms of how we support Indigenous learners, but by no means is it perfect. So, what still has you feeling a little bit frustrated or dare I say, pessimistic about some things in the way that we, and I don't know that you're feeling that, but what, what is it that you're still feeling frustrated about in terms of how we support Indigenous learners here in BC? That, that definitely concerns about Indigenous learners, Tom, but also about the larger education system itself. Okay, fair enough. Um, it was around 2015 when public post-secondary issues came up to us in one of the regular meetings that we had with them. And they informed us that 92% of all BC Dogwood graduates, that's not just us, that's all Dogwood graduates, mm -hmm. are illiterate to step into post-secondary studies. So they, as post-secondary institutes, have to bring up the, the students' literacy levels to take on certain degrees and, and programming and whatnot. So that, that it makes me really nervous, Tom. Mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. And if you think as, as a system, the struggling there a bit is, is a nice way to put it, I'd say, that, that you know, we're, we're always on the bottom end of every socioeconomic indicator. So if the system is feeling that pain, it's compounded on us. Right. So it just needs a, a added attention, more light shed on, on our students, whether it be the success of our students or the lack of success of our students. Mm-hmm. Uh, but what does keep me going there, Tom, is that the, we, we know school boards are, are trying hard and they're doing new and innovative things and they're, they're leading to really good success rates for our kids. They're, they're being courageous themselves, Tom. Like I was on a, a call this morning with the Indigenous district leads throughout the province here. A number of them were sharing how they, as a district, take it, are taking it on themselves to not offer English 10, for example. Mm-hmm. Because years ago, we worked with the province and we came, with, came up with an English First Peoples 10 mm-hmm. that's academically equivalent to English 10. It's, but it's based on our literature, our worldview, our authors and whatnot. So if, if you want to graduate in that district, your grade 10 English is is about us. Mm-hmm. So it's those incremental steps like that, that, you know, the, 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 we need to recognize more that good work taking place in the province and use that as a demonstration that it can be done with a willing partner to encourage those boards that are historically a little bit less willing. Yeah, the English per, uh, First Peoples curriculum to me was a tremendous breakthrough here in British Columbia and really just, you know, it was almost a hitting the reset button about what what is quality literature, what is language, um, how do we teach it, how do we teach it through, uh, you know, uh, how, how do we create opportunities for not just Indigenous learners, but for non-Indigenous learners to have the opportunity to learn through language and culture within English First Peoples too, which is also a byproduct of that course. So I absolutely uh, loved that. Now, um, Tyrone, I think I would be derelict in my duties here if we did not talk about, uh, from an education perspective, we did not talk about residential schools and the residential school issue. And of course, it was just over a year ago in May of 2021 when the remains of 215 children were found in Kamloops at the site of a former residential school. And I think we all know that this is not going to be the last time a discovery like this is made. Um, I know there is no way to truly sort of get over or move past the legacy uh, of residential schools in Canada. Uh, The intergenerational effects alone will never truly be reconciled. Um, and I'm not even sure I really have a question here. And I'm trying to ask this artfully, uh, as I as artfully as I can. Uh, I'm thinking about the pathway forward. Um, knowing that what happened in Kamloops last year was not a one off, how do we both Indigenous and non Indigenous people grapple with the horrors of the past as we try to find our way forward in coming to terms because we know as i said what happened last year is likely to repeat itself and i'm just wondering from your perspective how do we together grapple with the horrors of the past there's a a few things happening uh since um camloose became public tom uh, w- one is a, a more of awareness by British Columbians, and, British Columbians, sorry, Canadians of what actually happened in residential schools. Because mm-hmm. a lot of British Columbians, a lot of Canadians that I talked to over the years, 
I think we're lying when we're raising, talking about the atrocities in the residential schools. But now when they're hearing on the news that there's bodies of children, you know, three, four, five, six, eight, ten years old yeah. being found in unmarked graves, it's really hitting them hard in the hearts, Tom. It's it's opening up their hearts in ways that we never could in the past. Um, and it, it absolutely relate to that because, it, you know, children of any race are important right they're they're valued they're, they're loved and whatnot and i think it's taking that to, to have a lot of british columbians a lot of canadians kind of step back a little bit and start looking oh, gee now i kind of get why you see so many first nations on skid rows in cities and whatnot so impoverished first nations across the country and whatnot because, you know it's it's a history that was imposed on us it wasn't optional it was imposed so canadians are just now starting to understand that and we, we'd like to, to leverage that passion to, to make inroads in more awareness and in BC we've worked with the province and and, and st education stakeholders we, we've come up with Indian residential school curriculum and uh, that, that could be taught in public schools we've come up with teacher resource guides for teachers that don't know us but you know they need a little bit of support to be able to teach curriculum on residential schools but the uptake on it over the years is pretty low Tom or yeah. not as high as we'd like so now really hoping that with more of this awareness out there, more teachers would go, gee, maybe I should learn more about this. And gee, maybe I should be teaching my students about it as well. Because that it's that education aspect of it. That, you know, All we ask for is a, is a level playing field, because right now it's not level for us. We're, we're looked down on and with zero understanding of why we're at the bottom end of so many socioeconomic indicators. So in one regard, it, it's really softened the approach of many British Columbians, many of those in the education system and other systems as well. So as sad and, and you know, as it's, it's, it's hard to respond to, to unmarked graves being discovered like that, Tom, and as a leader, as, as a father, as a grandfather. Uh, but just all we can do is step back is, you know, send our prayers that way and hope communities like Kamloops can come to grips with it and do what they need to to, to finally process it themselves. But what, what I'm worried about, Tom, is as hard as that is mentally and spiritually and, and physically on us and a lot of other British Columbians and Canadians, this is compounded on top of two years of COVID. So that, that added mental stress, that added mental harm that, that every one of us have been going through and not being able to meet with our family and friends on a regular basis. It is getting better now, but we have a ways to go to rekindle those relations. Mm -hmm. So it, it, when folks are asking, you know, what could we learn from, what could we do as a result of Kamloops? And all, all I could say is, you know, be compassionate, feel, feel empathy towards us, but, uh, you know, be willing to work with us. Yeah. And know, knowing that we're not going to use that as a crutch or a sledgehammer. It's just our reality, Tom. It's a, it's a really sad, hard pill to swallow reality, but, but help us overcome it. And coming back to education, in my view, is the best vehicle to overcome that. So let's continue to make some significant changes in education, not only to support the successes and academic achievements of our kids, but continue educating British Columbians and Canadians on that history in the appropriate way. It's, it's not a, a crutch, it's not a sledgehammer, but it's a reality. And I feel really strongly, Tom, that when we do that in, a, in an effective, productive way, it's going to take away a lot of this indifference, bias, and racism that British Columbians and Canadians feel against First Nations, 
you know, nas- that this, it's so natural in the Canadian fabric to be indifferent or racist towards us. Well, mm-hmm. now it's an opportunity. Let's overcome that for the betterment of First Nations, the betterment of Canadians, and for the betterment of us, us as a country as a whole. Do you, do you think it, um, the denial, the defensiveness, et cetera, do you think it is, uh, and I know, I know I can't cast everyone as a monolith in one group, but do you think it is that um, British Columbians, Canadians take the assertions too personally in that the things that have happened in the past and the assertions about racism and the, and the atrocities of residential schools, is it that, that Canadians in modern society are taking that too personally and taking it as an individual uh, affront rather than seeing it as a systemic thing? Is that, is that where part, from your perspective, is that where part of the challenge is coming from? I, I think the, 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 what you're describing as a challenge, Tom, has become more in the public domain over the last 20 years, particularly via social media. Right. If, if you go back to the 1990s and prior to that, Canadians would have no idea we even, even existed. It's right. like a lot of school boards wouldn't even know which First Nations are within their districts and whatnot. And, you know, we were we, we being seen as nothing but wards of the state. Yeah. And the the Indian Act makes us that right. It it yeah. impoverishes us. It it puts it puts us in a position that disempowers us. That we have to go to the federal government for anything and everything. And and just think, Tom, it, it was only about sixty years ago where our leadership of the day, our chiefs and councils, couldn't make a decision without a, an Indian agent's sign, signature to a decision. Right. So that paternalistic and. You know, that's not that long ago, yet we've come so far since. Right. So it's been a struggle and we've had willing partners in the education system right in the early days as well. But there hasn't been enough of them. There, there hasn't yeah. been enough understanding by the general public. And you see it play out in, in trustee elect, elections where trustees t- tend to be pre- pretty dem- demonstrative of the, the, the population within the school district. Right. And if the population within the school district are, are don't know about us, they're ignorant about us, or they're indifferent or biased, you know, the trustees are going to be th- that very thing, Tom. Right. So the more awareness out there that I, I think over time, well, that, that you'll see a, sh- a shift in some of those school boards that have been such a problem for, for generations that, you know, their eyes open a little bit differently tomorrow. They start thinking a little bit differently. They feel some empathy and they're willing to do a little bit more for us, not do everything for us, but do more things with us is, yeah. you know, that'd be pretty significant. Yeah. To advocate for the changes that are necessary. Uh, certainly uh, I think it's very true. We have come a long way, um, but at the same time we have a long way to go. Uh, in terms of what's needed. So with advocacy, I want to shift back to uh, thinking about uh, the future. You know, with any kind of advocacy, there's always a set of goals or a desirable outcome. Uh, So as you think about the education of Indigenous children and youth in British Columbia, what is the desirable or ultimate, what is the vision for you from your perspective? I know that there are many voices and many people have slightly different perspectives and I know you don't speak for everybody, but from your perspective, you know, what would have you saying, we finally did it? Like we finally have, even if it's a pipe dream, like what is it that we, what is that desirable outcome? This is how our indigenous children and youth should have been educated all along. What would have you saying that? What's the vision? For for, for me, what I see at the, the, I don't want to say end of the tunnel, Tom, but what I see down the road is, 
uh, our education outcomes continue to, to improve, that we're, we're graduating uh, at least the same as the rest of British Columbians, if not better, mm -hmm. that then we're advancing into to professional positions where we have more of our teachers in classrooms, more of our principals, superintendents and whatnot, special needs teachers, you know, the, the professionals in the system. Mm -hmm. But beyond that, we're, we're, we're engaged in, in, in civic elections, we're participating directly in local governments, where more of us are elected in the provincial governments and whatnot. So mm -hmm. we're, we're, we're incorporated more in the British Columbia society writ large. Mm -hmm. And to do that, we need a really well-educated population. So that's really what I see in my mind, Tom. There's a lot of things that other successes along the way, whether they be improved employment rates and improving the, the wages of those that are employed, you know, going on to professional careers and whatnot. And knowing it's not for everybody, but th those that seek trades, there's, there's more journeyman trades out there doing really good work. And, you know, they're really happy in their careers yeah and ultimately for me when i when i look out there and see people working i really look for the for the people that are passionate about what they're doing they enjoy what they're doing mm -hmm. so it's not all about the highest wages tom it's about building skills to allow people to to, to enjoy what they're passionate about at you know whatever that might be at, at any level and that's what success is for me thomas mm -hmm. when we're meeting the the learning needs of individuals we're not talking about a, a stat for the 7,500 First Nations in public schools or the 5,000 in our schools. We're talking about individual successes. And it takes a lot of work to get there. For but sure. it's so rewarding when we see those smiling faces that, you know, people enjoy what they're doing. It's, it's not a job. They happen to get paid for it. They love it. They that, love it. That, that would be ideal for me, Tom. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, I mean, that is that would be a tremendous accomplishment and certainly something worth striving for and advocating for and making sure that uh, that all of our learners, Indigenous learners are set up for success, a life of success, financial security, passion for the work they're following and, and leading. Um, and, and all of that just absolutely uh, would be an, a tremendous accomplishment for sure. So let's finish up by widening our view a little bit. I want you to, because because I know Tyrone that you have um, interactions with other organizations across Canada and, and, and maybe into the United States and around the world, I'm not sure. We know that political boundaries are, are uh, a sort of Eurocentric idea and we know that nations cross borders all the time. So mm -hmm. I'm thinking about when you look across Canada or you look into the United States and you think about another model or another jurisdiction, how they are supporting Indigenous ed learners, Indigenous education. Is there anything that you see across Canada or into the United States that you're maybe, maybe a little envious of or you think we should replicate that or that's something we should do here in British Columbia? Is there a model out there or is there an aspect of that model out there that you think would be really helpful here in British Columbia? The, first of all, the, the model we built here in BC, we, we've looked at other jurisdictions, we've learned from them, we've borrowed from them, we've invited them here to, to present to us on it. So the, the one of the uniquenesses about our model here in BC is we've, we've got the systems model in place, we've mm -hmm. got the structures model in place, mm -hmm. but we wouldn't advance it without an appropriate funding methodology to support it. Mm -hmm. So when I look at other um, models across Canada, I see some really good structures and really good systems, but they don't have the necessary funding to, to, to do what's intended in their agreement. So mm -hmm. we, we and not, not to put down anybody, it's just the, their, their, their strategy, their tactic. Well, th this is ours. Mm 
Okay. Uh, on, on the K to 12 side, I, I, I want to be careful how I say this, Tom, but a, a lot of people tell us that we, we're the organization for First Nations education mm-hmm. and in, in Canada. But on the post-secondary side, in particular, what some of our counterparts and, and the United States are doing is just tremendous. Well, where they've got their own accredited post-secondary institutes with thousands of students putting on all kinds of degree programs. And mind you, one of their communities might be, you know, 15,000 citizens alone, whereas in BC, and it's one of our number one challenges, Tom, so many of our communities are so small. Right. So that, that compels us to come together and aggregate and build out from there. So from that, you know, it'd be ideal to take a, a U.S., tribes model and start talking about that here and we are at the early stages of building a, a made in bc for bc first nations post-secondary model and we'll be definitely be looking at models such as that and then one of the, the 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 areas that we have to roll up our sleeves and do more work on is on the early childhood development early childhood education aspect of things now mm-hmm. particularly now with the ministry of education taking over the authority for those early years mm-hmm. now we have to you know cast their web out what are other jurisdictions doing around early childhood knowing right that knowing that there's a a play-based aspect to it and uh, an early years education aspect to it and and there are two important factors. Not one can't trump the other or usurp the other. There's room and space for, for both. And and in my experience, Tom, that, that compels me to, to talk to, to folks about a, a hybrid model or transition in those early years into grade one in particular. Yeah. Where if you're talking about early years program and early childhood educators who aren't certified teachers, or talking to certified teachers in kindergarten that aren't early childhood education teachers. You know, we need a hybrid teacher certification that takes the best of those and best positions children to step into grade one at a grade one or higher level and hit the ground running. Yeah, that's fascinating. I did. I was not aware of the post-secondary um, institutions in the United States. It sounds like there's some cross-country conversations where um, I was kind of hoping you would say that about BC's model, because I do know that BC is often looked to, but I just wondered about other jurisdictions. But it sounds like for K-12 education in terms of including the funding, uh, that BC may be the model to look to, but the cross-conversation about post-secondary, but you're right to point out the population issue. I think that's something that Canada itself deals with, which is having such a, a much smaller population. Therefore, the institutions just can't sustain themselves. But um, a, a question about that, is there are there agreements, because we know that when students from Canada attend United States universities, there is an international tuition that is charged to those students. But I'm wondering, is is that something that is the same if an Indigenous learner from, from Canada wanted to attend uh, an Indigenous university in the United States, is there a different kind of agreement financially, or is there a way that students can attend those schools in the United States uh, without having to face the same sort of international uh, uh, kinds of fees or tuition? I, I, I admit to being ignorant about the topic, so I'd be interested and curious to know how that sort of plays out. Well, we've got a number of our, our students attending uh, post-secondary institutes internationally, Tom, okay. whether it's the United States, Britain, France, Italy, like that. sometimes I'm shocked, even one of my members here from Seabird gets a, a degree out of the university in Italy and, and they show up at our, our community awards, you know, mm-hmm. we don't even recognize them because we haven't seen them for years, <laughs> but, but, you know, they, they found a way to do it. Yeah. 
and a piece of it is our ability to financially support them we do okay. have limited funds yeah. it'll be a community's choice do they do they fund a student to, to go to an institute in the united states or even alberta or, mm. or ontario mm -hmm. or uh, london for example so a piece of that is the local community's priority and their ability to move right. funds around. And see, that's the reason we're building a post-secondary model here, because right now we do know our system is underfunded, mm -hmm. that communities have to cherry pick who to support and who they don't have enough resources to support. And the, the, many of those same communities are finding their own revenue, own source revenue, and putting that towards post-secondary studies as well. Mm -hmm. So uh, uh, it's safe to say that we, we don't necessarily have the same barriers of other British Columbians or Canadians in attending those international um, institutes, but it, it ends up being a financial burden and whether we have the ability to support them right. financially or not. Right. And then at the same time, those students are working one and two jobs to, you know, to, to get their own money to pay for the fees and, right. and room and board and whatnot as well. So it's, it's not like they're relying totally on our post-secondary funding. They, they're doing what they can as well. Yeah, for sure. So uh, wonderful. Uh, Tyrone, this has been a, a fascinating conversation. And certainly I know that I'm, I'm going to listen back to this myself uh, uh, several times. I really appreciate it. So let's uh, two questions left. Let's finish up here as we close out. Uh, these are two questions, Tyrone, I ask everyone who comes on the podcast. They're two general questions. You can take them in any direction you want to. The first question, again, take it where you want. Educationally speaking, what keeps you up at night? In terms of education, it's about never giving up. Mm -hmm. Never be too frustrated. Never be too angry. Um, never take too hard a line or at least limit the hard lines because occasionally we do. So in that regard, what keeps me up at night sometimes is who's across the table that, that might be preventing us from advancing, preventing us from improving the outcomes of our students. And whether it's something as large as a, a ministry of education or you know you, you go down a layer to school boards and it's actually that relation between the ministry of education and school boards that does keep me up at night mm -hmm. tom yeah. because the, the 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 ministry is empowered school boards to be for the most part autonomous but i, I continually tell a ministry you, you can delegate any and all authority that you f see fit to school boards except ours so ministry, we need you to come in and support us at the school board level when we ask you to, and the school boards need to be open to that. So it's it's that piece, Tom, that we need to figure out is how do we have school the ministry hold school school boards trustees accountable in terms of our priorities that that allows us to to improve and really that's all we're asking for is provisions to improve the outcomes of our kids. Mm -hmm. So and I don't necessarily call that a jurisdictional divide or jurisdictional space. It's a delegated authority from the ministry to school boards. And we need to look at that differently. And I wouldn't be at all surprised, Tom, that when we bro broker whatever that is to, to, to better suit our needs, that other British Columbians might look at it and go, geez, you know, we, we want to be a little more engaged through um, and have support for the ministry rather than our local school boards as well. So it might be an opportunity to take a look at the education system and do a little bit of redesigning, you know, a really thought, well thought out, thoughtful, strategic process. But it's, it's that that bit of a narrative that yeah. I wake up at two at night, maybe we should try this or have we tried that kind of thing. Yeah, that's... 
understandable for sure that 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 would keep you up at night for sure. That's a that's a big one. Last question as we finish up, Tyrone. Generic question about success. If a random person stopped you on the street and said, "What's what's your definition of success?" How would you answer them? Uh, my definition of success is seen and felt uh, in all aspects of living here in British Columbia, whether I'm attending a post-secondary institute or I'm walking into a, a supermarket or a mall where, you know, right now, if I, if I walk into a store, Tom, chances are somebody gets up and they stay 10 feet behind me for the entire time I'm in that store. That's that racist behavior of the store because they don't know us, right? right? So over time, we've modified the education of everybody here in British Columbia so that they know us better, that racism is diminished. It'll never be completely gone, but diminished. So success is being reflective and, and being felt like as a part of the British Columbia fabric. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, where our graduation rates have increased. And I, I got two grandsons, Tom. They're five and six years old. They're, they're in the education system. And success for me is for, for those two boys graduating with Dogwoods or better, stepping directly into post-secondary institutes, completing advanced degrees. And in that whole education life for them, they see themselves reflected in the education curriculum. They see themselves reflected in instructors that in front of the, the, the classrooms. And they, if they feel welcomed and, and warmly by their peers because their peers know who they are as two young Stalo boys right now, uh, growing up wanting to advance themselves. So, and I don't want to call it holistic necessarily, Tom, but it, it kind of re relates to that where it's a broad welcoming by the this education system itself, being reflected in the cur curriculum, being taught by culturally appropriate teachers and instructors along the way. And that's what success for me. And it is at that personal level because I love my boys, Tom, and I want nothing but for the best for them in yeah. the future. Absolutely. Uh, that would be the epitome of success for sure. Uh, listeners, you can follow Tyrone on Twitter. Uh, the handle is at STCTY, so S-T-C-T-Y-E. And Tyrone is also on LinkedIn. I'll have links in the show notes for both of those accounts so you can uh, connect with Tyrone. Tyrone, uh, this was a fantastic conversation today. I really, really appreciate you doing this. Thanks for being here. Thank you so much for having me. It's, uh, I really enjoyed it. This podcast is a proud member of the Teach Better Podcast Network. Better today, better tomorrow, and the podcast to get you there. You can find out more at teachbetter.com slash podcast. Now let's get back to the episode. Okay, assess that with Tom and Nat. Welcome Ooh. back, Natalie. Good to see you. Thanks, Tom. Always a pleasure to be here. Yeah, it's great to have you back. And last time we were chatting about uh, negotiables, non-negotiables, uh, where we have some choices of flexibility, we ended our mm -hmm. session uh, talking a little bit about analogies. And so we suggested we pick up the conversation <laughs> with mm -hmm. some analogies. So let me throw it to you. And uh, where do you want to start today? Well, I told you last time where I want to start. I heard a tale uh, I believe it was from Shannon Shingles, a shout out that you have a fantastic pancake analogy <laughs> that just gets the people going. So gets <laughs> the throw... people going. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm going to throw it right back epic. to you. <laughs> okay. I'll throw it. All right. All right. I can start there then. That's okay. fine. Yeah. The, the whole, um, let me give the backstory on it and then I'll give the analogy. A lot of times I will introduce this analogy to people when I'm talking about academic rigor and talking about assessment from this perspective, uh, assessment as far as assessing your standards or your outcomes by topic, 
that's something teachers don't really need a lot of support with. Like you'd almost have to go out of your way to not cover your standards by topic. The question really comes down to the cognitive rigor. Am I assessing my standards or my outcomes at the appropriate cognitive complexity? And am I getting to the right depth of thinking? And the, the key is, am I making sure that evidence that falls under that, the underpinnings, don't really contribute to grade determination? So I basically start off by describing it. So I'll, I'll, I'll describe the analogy as if I were describing it in a workshop. And I think listeners, you've probably heard me allude to this a few times on, mm -hmm. on previous episodes, but I'll try to quickly give you what the analogy <laughs> is. So, and I, and what I do when I, when I give this analogy is I often mix the language purposefully. I, I tell participants in the workshops that just say, look, I'm going to mix education language with language of cooking. It's going to get a little clunky, but I'm trying to drop some hints as I go through it. Okay, so mm -hmm. so it begins by saying, I'm going to describe for you the process of making pancakes. So, And making pancakes from scratch, right? It's only six ingredients. We don't need to buy the bag and add water from Costco. We're going to make it from scratch. It's way better. Okay, so mm -hmm. I get the recipe and I unpack the recipe, right? So whenever I'm making a recipe, I unpack the recipe and I figure out what ingredients are necessary to make the meal. So a basic pancake recipe would be um, you know, two and a half cups of flour, four tablespoons of sugar, four teaspoons of baking powder, it'd be two eggs, two cups of milk, and a teaspoon of vanilla. So mm -hmm. that's a basic recipe. So now once you have those ingredients on the counter, it's sometimes tempting to look at that and say, okay, you've got your flour, you've got your eggs, you've got your sugar, you've got your baking powder. I've got all the ingredients on the counter there. I've made pancakes. But of course, someone would look at that and say, we haven't made anything that you have the ingredients necessary to make the meal. So what I'm getting at there is that sometimes we look at unpacking standards or unpacking outcomes, and, and yet we forget to repack them for summative assessment, mm -hmm. putting the ingredients back together. So now the middle step with baking, pancakes are technically baking, where you have to follow chemistry, right? So cooking, you, you, you cook mm -hmm. to taste, you can add this, that, that. So first of all, then I've got my bowl of wet ingredients and I've got my bowl of dry ingredients. That is always the middle step in baking. Now I'm mm -hmm. getting closer to making pancakes, but I have yet to make pancakes, but I need to teach my students about wet and dry ingredients. I need to teach them flour. I need to make sure they know they need flour. They have enough flour, enough sugar. So it's trying to get to the idea that you're going to teach it, you're going to assess it, but you're not going to score it. You're not going to mm. grade it, right? So mm -hmm. then finally, we get to the point where they put all the ingredients together and they make the meal. And I'm going through this a little more quickly than I would in a workshop. I'd be a little bit more dramatic and a little bit more <laughs> drawn pretty out. dramatic. I don't know. Yeah, it's not that dramatic. Yeah. <laughs> so now we get to, now we put all the ingredients together and I've got my batter and now I make you pancakes. Okay. And I serve you my pancakes and you might, um, so I'm holding up four fingers. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I might serve you my pancakes and you say to me, Tom, these pancakes are exemplary. They are phenomenal. They are, everything about them not only shows competence, but they, it shows a level of finesse. It shows a refined mm -hmm. kind of technique, or I might serve you the pancakes. I'm holding up three fingers now. I, you know, they're, they're good pancakes, Tom. There's nothing about them that needs improving. You know, clinically they are, everything about them is solid, competent, proficient. They're good pancakes. There's nothing wrong with them. Not mm -hmm. quite the level of finesse, but they really, there's nothing wanting about them or holding up two fingers. I serve you my pancakes and you say to me, Tom, these pancakes, they have some aspects that are strong. I love the symmetry. I love the coloring that tells me you had the pan or the griddle at the right temperature but they are a little flat. They're not as fluffy as we wanted as far as what we set out to do. So they're partway there. Or I mm -hmm. hold up one finger and I say, I serve you the pancakes. And by every metric, they are minimally acceptable. They, it is pancakes, 
but almost every aspect needs some level of improvement, right? So what I'm trying to get at with that last part is making sure that people understand the difference between a learning progression and a rubric. So with the analogy of going from ingredients to the meal, what I'm trying to get across to to people is this is a learning progression. As we go from Mm -hmm. the individual ingredients Mm -hmm. to combining some of the ingredients to making the meal, that's the cognitive rigor changing. And that's sort of moving through the taxonomy and, and sort of giving people a sense of how things get put back together. But when I assess you, when I summatively assess or judge the quality of your pancakes, all four levels are about making pancakes, right? It's making pancakes, making pancakes, making pancakes, making pancakes. What I do do not say is you get a one because you have flour. You get a two because you have wet and dry ingredients. You get a three because you made pancakes. And you get a four because you went above and beyond and decided to add blueberries and whipped Mm. cream. Mm-hmm. So the one is the difference between a learning progression and one is a rubric. And so what I'm trying to get at there is the idea of assessment planning alongside the unit planning of how important it is to repack the standards and yeah. really get to the appropriate cognitive rigor. Okay. That, that essentially Damn. is the okay. analogy. There's a lot of layers to it. So then subsequently to that, Matt, what I yeah. would do throughout the workshop is I would come back and say, okay, so why don't we assess this evidence, right? And, uh, and I say, it's not pancakes. So that caused, so I get known as the pancake guy, yeah. I suppose. but I do. I think- and, I'll, and I'll, and I'll finish with this. I leave everyone with a mantra that I know they will never forget two things. They will never forget. One is every time they make pancakes, they're going to think of me. <laughs> okay. And, and two, more importantly, okay. I leave them with the mantra, stop grading flour. I would and, argue raw yeah. egg. Every time raw someone egg. tries, <laughs> next time anyone tries to like, yeah. put a grade on like formative evidence i'll say mm-hmm. hmm, do you enjoy drinking raw eggs that'll there be my go. way yeah. of building on your analogy that's a good idea i like that it's one funny. too but that's that's a mantra that i think can help yeah. people remind themselves of that anyway yeah it's really helpful it's funny uh we've never we didn't plan this ahead of time no, but no. um one of the first times i was doing a workshop on proficiency skills i use craft dinner okay <laughs> so like we it. came up with um because it was in you know my context so we used examples of all my different colleagues making craft dinner and we wrote these whole narratives and we had funny ones like you know so and so's partner is so forgetful when they're following the craft dinner recipe and they always mm-hmm. forget to add the butter so when their back is turned you know, you walk into the room and you add the butter when they're not looking, assess mm-hmm. the resulting evidence. And we, right. we made it like, we got some really juicy ones too, where we're like, you know, you're traveling in a different country and you really want to make craft dinner. So you have to mm-hmm. use your, uh, your interpreter on your phone to be able to read the instructions again, but mm-hmm. it's a perfect clinical bowl of craft dinner. Yeah. Is that proficient? So we were just getting the conversation Perfect. going, but again, Love using that. the analogy of a. Let me just dinner. pause pause you right there for a second, okay. Matt. For our American listeners, just so you know, Kraft Dinner is is essentially Kraft is a brand. Of, it is out of the box macaroni and cheese. Just in case it's not some in the of states, our, the American <laughs> listeners might not understand what they oh have Kraft Dinner, but I don't think they call it Kraft Dinner. So I just want to make sure some. Oh, I want to make sure that some of our listeners understand some of our Canadianisms, eh? How's it going? E. All right. All right. Good job, bud. Thanks. Um, All right. So keep going. Keep going. Analogies. Oh, okay. Analogies. Mine are not nearly as in-depth as yours. You really set the bar high. I sh- in retrospect, I probably should have gone first. But this is an analogy I've been using a lot lately, and perhaps you'll, it'll resonate with you, that when you start to explore assessment and specifically sound and equitable assessment practices, it's like pulling the loose thread on a sweater because Mm. though you think you're just trying to figure out how to give better feedback, it starts to quickly unravel everything else that you've assumed to be a fundamental part of your practice. Like for Mm. me, I 
coming from special education, I was always a little hesitant to move towards project-based learning. I was like, I think that's too complex. It's too much. And, you know, some limiting beliefs that I had early on. And then as I got better and better at understanding assessment, I was like, it, we don't need courses. We don't need these silos. Things could be integrated. Oh, wait a minute. We're looking at evidence for collaboration in these four contexts. Why are we doing it in these different four silos? Why don't? And then before you know it, everything just truly does start to unravel where the possibilities are endless for how you can design learning experiences when you're actually looking at gathering evidence of the learning standards rather than yeah. tasks. I think that's a good one, actually, because it is true that as you, I think what happens is, uh, you know, it's, it's cliche, a little bit of knowledge is a dangerous thing. As you start to pull on the thread of assessment, mm -hmm. you start to realize that there's a lot more, it can be, it, it is both simple and complex. It's simple because mm -hmm. we have a pretty clear research and pra best practices that tell us what the most favorable action is when it comes to assessment, but there are nuances that make it challenging. And I like that idea because once you pull on that thread of feedback and you start going down the feedback rabbit hole, then you think to yourself, mm -hmm. well, to set myself up to provide more in-depth feedback or more specific feedback that causes thinking rather than giving just a set of directions, mm -hmm. I need to be able to elicit evidence that allows me to do that. So that gets mm -hmm. into assessment architecture, right? And mm -hmm. then in the bigger picture, we say things like if you get into architecture and assessing formatively to elicit that feedback to give students next steps in learning, why would you undermine all of that? Uh, from your grading practices, in the end, you've gone through all of that work exactly. and now at the 11th hour, you're annoyed because they handed you something a day after you wanted it and you completely distort their achievement level. So I like yep. that idea of pulling on the thread because you think you're just going down the feedback <laughs> rabbit hole and suddenly no, no. you're holding a bowl of, uh, 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 a ball of yarn uh, yeah. and, and the sweater's gone, right? Yeah. A big one for me too that unraveled was I was like, okay, well, if my feedback needs to elicit thinking, it's probably best delivered through dialogue so I can really understand where they're at and make sure that we're on the same mm -hmm. page. But how do I meet with all my students one-on-one? -on -one? Okay, well, I should probably think about more of a blended learning approach so that right. I can have, and then wait, blended learning, they're all at different places. So how do I have them move on to the next thing? If they finish one mm -hmm. task, well, I should probably figure out different levels of complexity so that they can move as far as they can while I can continue conferencing one-on-one mm -hmm. -on -one with students. It just, it really does start to, mm -hmm. like you can't pick one area of assessment without naturally progressing into all of the other ones. Doesn't matter where you start, you'll fall into them all. That's for sure. And that's when Cassandra, Nicole, and I talk about our six tenets of assessment. We often make sure people understand that each of those six tenets is dependent upon the other five. Mm -hmm. they, they lean on each other. And so we always have to do, we have to always remember the advice our mothers gave us, which was don't pull on that thread. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> don't pull on that thread unless you're prepared to follow through. Uh, otherwise but it's a it's, wonderful it, journey. It's a wonderful it is, rabbit it is, hole. It is, it is a wonderful journey for sure. And and I, I love, I do love that analogy because I think it's a, it really does tell you that it isn't just as simple as, as tugging on it. You really have to be prepared to, in stages, I don't want to overwhelm yeah. people, but yeah. in stages, you've got to be prepared to reconsider a lot of what, of what you might be, be doing around assessment. Mm -hmm. Other analogies? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I actually, so these two are inspired by others. Um, I've been on okay. a quest to learn a lot more about portfolios the past year. And okay. they're, they're two analogies essentially of what not to do, but they really stuck with me. The first one mm -hmm. came from Katie White in the interview we had. She said, portfolios should not be a scrapbook. And she went on mm -hmm. to explain that you don't want this to be a place where everything that you could possibly gather gets dumped. So it just becomes a scrapbook with like, oh, mm -hmm. here is the bottom of the receipt from that restaurant that one time mm -hmm. that we were on the pier. That doesn't like really matter in the grand scheme of things. Right. So that's the one extreme. And then the other extreme, 
someone I was talking to a couple days ago said, you don't want portfolios to become the refrigerator. And I was like, when you like got delicious food in it, what do you mean by that? And he was like, no, it's where all the best work goes. It's where the A plus test goes. Mm-hmm. He's like, a portfolio should show work in progress. It should document failures. It should have some messiness to it. So mm-hmm. for me, I'm like the perfect analogy of what makes for a portfolio somewhere between a scrapbook and a refrigerator. Mm-hmm. Okay. I don't know what that is, but I'll, I'll yeah. figure out what that analogy is. There's something in there. I like there. that. There is something in there for sure. I think portfolios are a really interesting idea because, um, you know, where I might deviate slightly in the thinking is, is that a portfolio can be whatever you want it to be. My issue with portfolios is when we say it's one thing and then it becomes another. If you want the portfolio to just be a scrapbook and be show and tell, then that's fine. If you want a program like uh, uh, Fresh Grade or uh, Seesaw, if you want that to just be here, here's the highlight reel. Here's the sports center. Mm -hmm. Let's just show you the highlights. Then do that. What happens is sometimes we say this is a portfolio to show growth. And yet we treat it like a scrapbook. Mm. And that's where we get into trouble, right? So if we want it to be a growth, we have to decide what the purpose of the portfolio is. Because if it's a growth portfolio, for example, then I want early evidence, middle evidence, and late evidence. If it's an assessment or an achievement portfolio, then I want an array of samples where I would take some of that early evidence out of the portfolio because I would want an adequate sampling of my learning. If it's meant to be show and tell, that's fine. If it's meant to be, you know, again, so Mm. for me, the issue with portfolios is when we say it's one thing, but we but we execute it in another way. That's where we really. And I agree. I don't disagree with their assertions around around the scrapbook or the refrigerator, but I think the, the beginning of the the portfolio is deciding what do you want, what purpose do you want the portfolio to serve, mm-hmm. and then fulfill that mission and make sure that you keep a lid on what goes in the portfolio, yeah. either electronically or physically, because yeah. then you'll actually fulfill the purpose of what you're trying to say. Hmm. Saying one thing and doing another, that never happens in education, though, other than portfolios. (laughs) One last thing I want to say about digital portfolios. Um, It was actually, I was reading your new book about frequently asked questions, plug, plug. Mm -hmm. And uh, digital portfolios, let's throw that word in front of it. I think the greatest purpose right now for portfolios, if we want to go there, is filling that space between the summative evidence to circle back to the Mm -hmm. pancake analogy. The biggest problem I've run into is once you say, okay, let's just grade summative, you have less numbers going into the grade book. Because if you're using a platform like PowerSchool and a lot of the other ones, if you make it exempt or not counting towards the final grade, it doesn't show Mm -hmm. it to parents. So we need something in the interim to say, hey, this is all the great stuff we're doing. And I think that's where if it's used for the purpose of communication on an ongoing basis to avoid the need for constant grading, that is a great use of portfolios. I think that I I love that. And I think the um, maybe something we pick up on for next time Mm -hmm. is is this conversation around you know, that the portfolio or evidence or wherever we'll, we'll figure out where we're going to go. But what I love about that is that when you have fewer entries into your grade book in a traditional sense, like there's fewer scores in the grade book we're, we're talking about quality, not quantity, but when it comes to quality, fewer numbers does not really relay quality. So being able to provide Mm -hmm. tangible evidence or visual evidence and criteria, that's the other part maybe to pick up on for next time is that sometimes we, we say the portfolio is one thing, but then parents don't know how to consume it. And mm-hmm. they don't know what the criteria is. They don't really know what they're looking at. And, and mm-hmm. therefore, that's how it regresses into show and tell. And a parent might say to themselves, 
yeah, that's great. Okay. Yeah. That's a nice castle or, or a volcano or whatever you did. And, uh, but they don't really know why it's, it's excellent. So maybe we'll pick yeah. up on that next time or, or maybe we'll, we'll go in a different direction. We'll give that some mm-hmm. thought, but uh, mm-hmm. again, uh, our time is up. Nat, uh, thanks uh, for being here this week. Time flies when you're having fun, Tom. Okay, that's it for this week. Remember to follow the podcast on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, and TikTok. Also, please email the podcast, tomshimmerpot at gmail.com. If you've got questions for Natalie and I on Assess That, uh, or if you have any suggestions or feedback for me about the podcast. And a reminder to check the show notes for the links for the upcoming professional learning events happening this summer, but also into the fall. The next episode will be Monday, July 18th. That'll be in two weeks where my guest will be Goldie Mohammed, who is the author of the book Cultivating Genius, an Equity Framework for Culturally and Historically Responsive Literacy. Now, full disclosure, we've already recorded that interview ahead of time, and I promise you, you are not going to want to miss that. Please subscribe, rate, review the podcast, especially on Apple Podcasts, of course, but a rating or review on any platform will help grow the podcast's reach. And of course, if you like what you hear, please keep spreading the word about the podcast to your friends, your colleagues, or on social media. I would really appreciate that. Happy summer, everyone. Happy summer, everyone.